Hi, and welcome to the Inspect and Adapt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts founded by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here at Constructs, we believe that every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. For the majority of the podcast episodes over the last couple of years, we've structured the podcast around recent engagements that our consultants have delivered. As is consistent with Inspect and Adapt, we're also experimenting with recording the podcast around topics that aren't directly related to any specific engagement, but rather on a specific practice or set of practices. It has worked well in the past, and so we thought we'd try it again today. What you hear today is a lightly edited extract from a live session recording we did in November of 2022. This discussion was centered on the concept of right-sizing your software development process, the idea of using a disciplined approach, a meta-process, if you will, to evaluate which practices are the most appropriate for the type of software projects you are working on. I invited two people with serious street cred here, Constructs Principal Consultant Steve Taki and Senior Fellow Earl Beatty to regale us with their very large brains. We pick up the conversation as I begin to frame what this discussion will be all about. So let's listen as Steve shares his ideas. And I think it was such a good conversation that they even kept me from talking too much, if you can imagine that. Anyway, here we go. We're going to talk about a meta process for correct software practices and processes, and that's a collection of things. And it's a little different, so it's not very specific to, th- to some one particular area. And this is something that maybe some of our listeners perhaps know about, and maybe a lot of them don't. And it's something that we have espoused for a long time about how we look at the software practice world and how we look at how processes are put in place for different teams. Uh, And so this is an exploration of that area that we have seen over the years and things that we have come up with to kind of assist people in figuring out what is the right process to be using. You know, let's just jump into it. That's that's the first question. There there really is no one size fits all software process. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly the point I want to be making here. In order to to jump into this, I think what I'm going to do is actually kind of start at the end and then <laughs> circle back to how you get to where you're going. I was working at a particular large manufacturing company in the Pacific Northwest, if you can read between the lines. And this particular company had bought huge into an off-the-shelf methodology. And the the year was 1992, by the way. So this predates Agile by a couple of years. They had bought big into this methodology for all software development at the company. However, the problem was that this particular methodology was aligned to IT systems. If you're building an inventory management system, if you're building uh, accounts receivable, accounts payable, then it was, in fact, a reasonable approach. But I was in scientific and engineering system, automated test equipment, uh, discrete event simulation, et cetera, et cetera. And for our kinds of projects, this was a totally, totally inappropriate process. And so the whole impetus of this came from the notion of clearly the upper level managers are not going to allow us to do nothing. Okay, And so we have to have a story for why we are doing things differently. That's basically the ground that set up this situation for the need for this. And and so, you know, obviously, to me at the time, was that there actually is no one-size-fits-all process. There are critical variations 
at a project level, not necessarily at an organization level, but to at some extent at an organization level, but actually at a project level that are significant enough that they affect how that project should be executed. Some really obvious differences are, do I have a large team? Do I have a small team? Are the people on the project team co-located? Are we within, uh, you know, all on the same floor of the same building, literally within shouting distance of each other? Are we spread across multiple time zones? That's certainly going to affect things. Production-oriented software development versus research-oriented software development. What I mean here is Waterfall, as a development process, grew out of an inherent assumption of production-oriented. And knowability. Yeah, the, the requirements knowability and the requirements stability. Right. And if you can assume that the requirements are knowable and stable, then Waterfall is, in fact, a reasonable process for uh, approaching the project. But clearly, that is not the case for all projects. Another variation, value of early delivery of partial functionality. Can the customers make legitimate use of fragments of functionality? Because if they can, then it certainly makes business sense to deliver pieces of functionality. But I... I have worked with in the past a particular company, this company gets one release a year. Whatever they do in terms of software development, they are constrained to only being able to deliver a new version of the software once a year because the cost of conversion from an old version to a new version is just so overwhelmingly large, you get one release per year. Uh, Is the software that we're building safety critical, mission critical, or is it just a web portal, etc.? etc. I think you got to think the process as a tool. And our founder, Steve McConnell, one of the jokes we helped him write was we put up 20 different kinds of saws on on a PowerPoint slide and said, all these saw wood, but they're different because there's different problems to be solved. And so if you think of your process as a tool and there's at least 20 different kinds of saws, there's got to be more variations in software projects than we have in saws. Why do we think that one saw is going to saw everything that we need to saw? Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yes, that that really is it. Right. That's just the crazy thing. It's a tool. Why do we think that one tool is going to solve every kind of problem that we're going to find? And so we've got to figure out a way, how do we get the right tool for the job? Exactly. To, to kind of extend your example there, you're only considering wood saws. What about metal saws? Yeah, metal, concrete, yeah, all that. We've got different problems, need different solutions, and software projects probably vary even more incredibly than surfaces or objects to be sawed. Sawed? So? Right, right. And so, again, to build on that analogy, each specific saw blade makes assumptions about the material that it is going to cut through. Right. And just the same, each actual software process, if you want to call documented software, whatever, each actual process is making assumptions about the project and the environment. The point then is that those assumptions that they made in putting together that process may not be true on your project. To the extent that the assumptions that they make are true on your project, then that process is a a good fit. But to the extent that those are not true assumptions, then Again, the idea is that it's not a good fit. I mean, one of the most obvious contemporary examples of this is a scrum out of the box is making assumptions about small team, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole idea behind scaled agile is, well, when the assumption of small team doesn't work, 
How do you expand out? Well, why would you do all of the scaled stuff when all you have is, in fact, a small scrum team? And so there's an obvious variation in team size alone. That's why we at your constructs have never really bought into one size fits all. That's always been our philosophy here is that we've got to look at your world, what problem you're trying to solve and help come up with a better solution. And this is where your process that you developed in 1992, Steve, really starts to sing out. I've always had sort of, what do they call it, uh, <laughs> a burr under the saddle with the, uh, with the idea that there could ever even be a one-size-fits-all process. If your solution to the problem is process X, you don't understand the universe. Okay, So then to get into what this meta-process is, it all starts with this notion of your charter. The charter is a precise, concise description of success. What does success look like for this particular project? And so the charter is typically a one-page document that's basically going to address a handful of topics. And so one of the topics is the authority. Who owns the resources that are being put to bear on this project? Who got to make the decision to allocate these resources to do this project as opposed to do some other project? So that's the authority. The agent is the project manager, or more abstractly, whose rear end is in the sling to get this all done. Completion criteria are objective criteria about doneness. The project is done when check, 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 check. Resources are what the agent is given to work with in terms of people, money, equipment, etc., etc., Constraints are things that will limit the agent's flexibility. Or is there a constraint on schedule? Is there a constraint on compliance to particular standards? Again, anything... Budget. Yeah, yeah. So anything that is limiting in some way on the, the agent's ability to run the project at their own whim. Priorities have to do with if you can't satisfy the whole charter, what's more important, what's less important? Is it more important to deliver everything even if we don't finish on time? Or is it more important to finish on time even if we don't deliver everything, etc., etc.? And assumptions are things that we are assuming to be true, but if they turn out to not be true, then that they would invalidate the charter. It would cause us to rethink the project. We get this one page, but precise, concise, documented agreement between whose job it is to get the job done and who wants the job done on what the job actually means. Who writes this document? Who's responsible for putting it together? And, and, and when you say authority and agent, give, give a specific example in that case of a typical, you know, who, who are the role players there? Okay, so uh, let me use what I like to jokingly call Project 1492. <laughs> so it's not a software project. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, blah, blah, blah. So the authority there was uh, Queen Isabel of Spain. She's the one who had the ships, who had the money, who was willing to invest the ships and the money in this project of answering a question. Okay, well, who was the agent whose rear end was in the sling? And the answer is Christopher Columbus. Well, what was success? Well, success was to answer the question, is there a shorter route to go to India 
by not saying south sailing south around Africa, because they had known how to do that for years and years and years. But is there a shorter route? Go go answer the question. Can we get to India quicker by going west instead of going south and then north? Now, there were other completion criteria, like if you run into any uh, territory along the way that hasn't been claimed, you know, then then claim said territory for Spain, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what were the resources? The resources were three ships, 90 crew, some amount of supplies and some money to buy supplies that you didn't already have with these three ships. What were the constraints? Well, you had to come back within three years. I mean, we know it takes three years to go the normal way. And so if you don't come back in three years, we're basically going to give you up to debt. Okay, now again, is it more important to come back with an answer to the question, even if it took you longer than three years, or was it more important to come back in three years or less, even if you didn't necessarily answer the question? Now, what about assumptions? Well, there's an assumption built into this that the the world is, in fact, round, that you won't fall off the edge of the world. And so, da-da-da. So, and there's no content between you and India. Yeah, and no intervening land masses is another... <laughs> Little problem. Assumption. Another assumption. Right. And so do you see how hopefully we could fit all of this onto a single page? And to answer your question about who writes it, the answer, I don't care who writes it. It doesn't matter if Queen Isabella wrote it. It doesn't matter if Christopher Columbus wrote it. What matters is that both of them agree that these are the parameters of the project. Right. Right. And I love how this scales because you could actually see this exact same kind of thing happening at the individual story level in Scrum, for example, where the individual story, you can say, who's the authority? Well, the authority is the person who has resources. This is the project sponsor. We could be whoever wrote um, is, is authorizing this overall work. But the agent is, the, in this case, the product owner. They're in the sling to make sure that this gets queued up to the team and gets done in a reasonable fashion. And they have the acceptance criteria in the story itself. And you can go down the list and it scales the same way. And again, who writes it? Most of it's implicit at this point, right? Because we've hopefully set up the overall project with a charter. And then this scales right down to that individual story where we can start saying, what's the acceptance criteria, its constraints, its priorities? And off we go. What does it mean to be successful when we complete the story? We got the exact same thing going on here at a smaller schedule. But these are the things you've got to really have understanding of. Not just written down, but really saying, okay, what is our completion criteria? What are our resources? What are our constraints? And be explicit about them to the degree that the team can go, yes, we are willing to accept this and take it on. The core is the agreement that we're both playing to the same sheet of music. I agree. You agree. This makes sense. Let's work together to make this happen. Okay, so that's step one, charter the project. Now, implicitly, in practice, not explicitly, but implicitly, whoever is the project manager should be framing in their mind what I would call a risk-free plan, where the notion here is, if my job is just to satisfy the charter, what is a sensible approach to satisfying the charter? And again, not explicitly, you don't have to write this down. You just have to have this sitting in your back of your mind. How would I approach this? Under normal circumstances. Right. The next step is the idea of a risk assessment. This is built off of a couple of quotes, one by a consultant buddy of mine by the name of Tim Lister, who said, 
software project management is risk management. You could forget everything anybody ever taught you about how to manage software projects. If all you do is just approach managing the project from the perspective of managing its risks, you'll end up doing about 90% of what you should have done to manage the project in the first place. And the other quote comes from Capers Jones, who said, if you don't actively attack risk, risk will actively attack you. (laughs) And so these are the motivations behind having risk management baked into the meta process. You'll see that risk management is, in fact, baked in. It's a core theme. And we also see that a lot of processes have taken that to heart and started to bake in a lot of common risk practices into the practice itself. This is just making sure you're saying, hey, what are my risk management practices or things I'm going to do to address the risks of my project? Well, right, exactly. I mean, the, uh, Scrum assumes a requirements unknowability instability risk. And to the extent that that is an actual risk on your project, then that makes sense. Scaled Agile makes the assumption that you've got a large team risk. And again, to the extent that that risk that they are assuming is actually a risk on your project, then their way of addressing that particular risk makes sense. If you start with this risk-free idea, if I had no risks, what is just the basic things I need to do to to fulfill my charter? Start there and then start layering on practices that address your risk. You start doing your risk management, your risk assessment and saying, okay, here are the practices Mm -hmm. I need to do. Then you might end up with something very like Scrum or something very like Scaled Agile or something like that. But you'll also understand why the heck you're doing it as opposed to, oh, some methodology guru said I should be doing this. And so I do it, Mm -hmm. but you don't do it and actually address the risks that it was there to try to solve. You just go through the motions. Yeah, that's that's a very important point. Okay, but the idea of the risk assessment is not full risk management quite yet. Uh, We're doing the first three parts of risk management, which is identify the risks, analyze the risk, which is all about probability and severity, and then prioritize the risk. The prioritization step is to narrow it down to the top 10. Typically, a, a project has the ability to manage about 10. So let's focus it down on the 10 most important. And their project risks, let's be clear here, not product risks necessarily or business risks, like we're entering the market at the wrong time, but these are risks to successfully fulfilling the charter as it currently stands. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I kind of euphemistically refer to the risks as headwinds. What are things that can interfere with my ability to satisfy the charter? And in fact, somebody had once said at one point that a risk is a most likely excuse. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. What at the end of the project would you most likely use as an excuse for why you weren't successful? Let's identify those most likely excuses at the beginning of the project. And yes, it is about satisfying the charter. It's not about product risk, market risk, etc. It's success as defined in the charter. But then in parallel with the risk assessment is the idea of an asset assessment. I mean, risk assumes that the universe is out to get you. And well, honestly, to some extent it is. But on the other hand, is the universe entirely 100% bad? And the idea here is no. And so we want to look at tailwinds. What are the things that we've got going in our favor? Maybe we've built software like this before. Maybe we can reuse. Maybe we have some particular expertise. 
maybe there's this technology sitting out there in the wings that could really help. And so let's identify those things that would enhance our ability to satisfy our charter. There could be a set of practices that people have already developed that we could take advantage of to address some of our risks rather than having to vent it ourselves out of whole cloth. The idea is if I know what my charter is, and if I implicitly have an idea of what my risk-free plan is, and I know what my top risks are, and I know what my most significant assets are, then this allows me to put in place a plan. The idea is to make decisions on how you're going to run the project where every one of those decisions does at least one of three things. Does doing this, does doing this this way help me satisfy the charter? Does it get me to endgame? And or does doing this, does doing this this way help me control one or more risks? And does doing this and doing this this way help me maximize one or more assets? And so long as what I am doing throughout my entire project is at least one of satisfying the charter, controlling risk, maximizing asset, then it certainly makes sense to be doing it on the project. But to the extent that I'm doing something that is not helping me to satisfy my charter, it's not helping me to control a risk, it's not helping me to take advantage of an asset, then why in the world am I doing it? I find it's actually sometimes a little bit simpler because so many of my stakeholders' expectations are so uh, optimistic that every asset I could dream of is already baked in. So I'm only doing the charter and the risk part. <laughs> and I don't have to worry about the asset nearly as much because it's like, I have to have a miracle to happen even to hit the base charter. So I'm just worried about risk at this point. <laughs> right. And so one of the key decisions in the project is essentially the life cycle. Should we run in a more agile or research-oriented mode, or should we run in more of a plan-based mode? With Waterfall and Scrum, true agile being essentially ends of a spectrum. There's a whole family. One of the chapters in Steve McConnell's rapid development was all dedicated to just points along the spectrum of life cycle. And so all of the life cycles themselves are making certain assumptions about to what extent do you need to control cost and schedule? Because sometimes you do need to and sometimes you don't. And your charter, your risk, and your assets will tell you. To what extent do you need to show progress visibility? Because sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Minimizing rework and overhead. I mean, this will maybe ruffle a few feathers, but I'm already on record as saying Agile is great in certain environments, but do understand that as software development processes go, it's a high overhead process. And that if the conditions were right for you to use a more plan-based approach, that a more plan-based approach would get you to done sooner and cheaper. There's just built-in overhead in Agile. Now, when I'm in an area, an environment that's, as I said, research-oriented, then it's to my advantage. I'm willing to pay the cost of the overhead because it gives me the flexibility I need to deal with the uncertainty. But if I don't have that uncertainty, why should I pay the extra overhead 
Well, and, and here I'm going to counter you a little bit, Steve, because if we look at our most common software project risks by far, and you know this and you agree with it too, the data clearly shows number one are requirements risks, that we have poor requirements, poorly understood requirements. We, if we have the skills to do a great job up front in a plan, sure, but most of them don't. So that's still a huge risk. And the second one is project management risk, that we have unrealistic estimates, unrealistic expectations, and a more incremental agile approach actually does well with those two most common, most prevalent project risks. Uh, on the assumption that you don't have other solutions to those same problems. Well, they, I agree they exist because both you and I have run well done planned projects. We do have solutions for those and they do exist. And our industry has traditionally shown that they're just not widely used. Right. If you're willing to pay attention, we can solve these problems by other means more effectively. Cheaper. Yeah, it's, it's all a question. I've always said a question where you iterate, right? We like to iterate early in the process with our models. Agile tends to iterate late in the process with the code. Which is inherently more costly to iterate on code than it is to iterate early on models. Yeah, we, we can debate that. We got a nice question coming in from Amber here. So we have a question as any additional suggestions for resources to help understand the options between Waterfall and Scrum and the benefits and particulars to understand when to leverage those options. Steve, you alluded to Steve McConnell's rapid development as discussing different types of models, different types of processes to put in play. Any, any, any other resources besides that? Yeah, I had written up a white paper years and years ago that basically compares and contrasts what are the strengths and weaknesses of Agile, what are the strengths and weaknesses of Waterfall, that eventually ended up as one of the chapters in my second book. It's called Shameless Promotion right now, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If somebody wants to contact me, I'll just send you the, the white paper that says, okay, here is what Agile means, and here are the strengths of Agile, here are the weaknesses of Agile, and here is Waterfall, here's what it means, here are its strengths, here are its weaknesses, and do you notice how the strengths of one are, in fact, the weaknesses of the other, further emphasizing that they're essentially ends of a spectrum. To me, I think if you start to look at, to understand the options between Waterfall and Scrum and looking at that continuum in between, because there is a continuum in between, a couple things stand out to me really quick, though. One is how good are you as terms of process thinking people? One of the reasons I think Scrum has succeeded as well as it has is because a lot of people are not process thinking people. They just want something that's close enough that gets the job done. And if I, I kind of joke and say, if you're going to do waterfall and scrum, it's harder to really screw up scrum than to screw up waterfall. I can screw up waterfall a bazillion different ways. Scrum's slightly harder to screw up because you, you should learn. If you're any kind of attentive people, learn quicker that you're screwed up. I can go a year and a half in a waterfall project and not learn that I'm screwed up, where I could hopefully learn sooner than that that things are screwed up in scrum. But then I would argue that you're doing waterfall wrong. I know, but I'm just saying, if you're not a process person, if you're screwing things up, it's easier to f see that you're screwing things up in Scrum. Well-run waterfall and well-run Scrum, I like well-run waterfall. Poorly-run waterfall and poorly-run Scrum, I like poorly-run Scrum better because I learn quicker that I'm poorly-run and I might have an opportunity to do something about it. So the real question is, do you think you have good skills up front? Because that's where a lot of this trouble happens is in early parts of the project. Are we defining requirements well? Are we defining the charter well? If you're not doing good upfront stuff, 
That's one thing that's really the difference between them is that Waterfall really needs some good upfront stuff. And Scrum can go, well, my up stuff sucks, but I'll learn quickly that it sucks. <laughs> and hopefully I'll get something better before the end. To me, that seems to be the, the, the nut between them. But I, yeah, I, Steve's paper is very good as well. Okay, but I would counter-argue that there are failure modes in Scrum that get hidden by the mechanics of Scrum that make you think you're not failing when, in fact, you are. I think that's probably reasonable true, though hopefully I still get a release sooner. <laughs> okay, but I, the, the quote that I wanted to bring up, uh, which is relevant to the point that you just made, is the... Why do we, software industry, why do we as an industry fall into this trap of thinking that we can only use a process that was published in some book or some paper by some other person? Are they somehow smarter than us that only a few select high priests are, have the ability to define processes? And my point is absolutely not that there's nothing inherently special about these people that make them the high priests and priestesses that are the only few people on planet Earth capable of defining process. That you and I and everybody else with the right education can also roll your own software process, and that is, in fact, the meta process. How do you roll your own process? Well, you understand where you're trying to get to. You understand the headwinds. You understand the tailwinds. And then you build your process around the notion of, I need to get to where I need to get to and control the risks along the way and take advantage of the assets along the way. And there's nothing more simpler than that. I think it's a little bit more complex than that in the sense that when I start looking at my assets and looking at, at my risks, first of all, I have to have relatively good skills on risk assessment, relatively good skills in asset assessment. And my assets, I need to have a good enough toolbox. It's one thing to say I did my risk assessment and, and I look at my toolbox and all I have is one type of saw. Well, okay, <laughs> I need cutting. It's the wrong kind of saw, but I still need to cut and that's the only tool I've got. This is calling for a certain degree of what I would call professionalism and understanding the toolbox and understanding when each of the tools in the toolbox is appropriate. Yeah, and this is where I think a lot of software developers are not at right now, unfortunately, in our industry. And we have very little. I mean, even when back when process was king and training was in vogue, <laughs> a lot of people didn't actually build their toolbox. Our founder, Steve McConnell, loved to say that the average number of software engineering books that software developers read per year was less than one. Well, the statistic that I had heard that if you ask for a typical professional, how many professional software professional, how many software books do they own? How many professional oriented books do you own? The answer is about three. And that's books on any topic, not software process. And they probably got them in college and just not thrown them away yet. Possibly. And I have multiple bookshelves worth of books on, you know, how many books do I have on requirements? How many books do I have on design? How many books do I have on construction? How many books do I have on testing? How many books do I have on project management? Blah, blah, blah. Huh. Shameless marketing. How many books have I written myself? Oh, that's another story. Well, and then we can talk about the idea of how many graduates come out of school in our profession with software engineering degrees as opposed to computer scientist degrees. Computer science, or, right. Or, like right. me, came out with philosophy. Computer science, you're learning all about algorithms to better operate a 
compiler or something, but you're not talking about these practices that drive a successful project, like how do you do great requirements? How do you do great estimation? How do you do great design? Never address that, especially if you try and do that in a group setting. They didn't address that. And so our toolboxes are really, really slim. Charter risk asset is exactly what's happened. And I think maybe some of those gurus who do have a better toolbox applied a charter risk asset implicitly and came up with a method that they thought was reasonably okay for most of the people who don't have a toolbox. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We can roll our own. That's why charter risk asset, this meta process is so powerful because not only does it allow you to roll your own, but I think it allows you to investigate what other people actually thought about at the time. What the hell was their assumption? What, What risk are they trying to address? What assets were they trying to take advantage of? Is that the same toolbox I have? Do I need to enhance my toolbox if I want to use this? Or can I twist it to use the tools I have available and still get a a good or better result? In fact, if you've heard of the name Rebecca Worf's Brock, Mm -hmm. she captured the same idea when you look at the values behind an approach. Not just what is the approach, but what are the values behind the approach? And the charter and the risks and the assets are what expose the value system. That gives you a way to be explicit in expressing what the values are behind the process you have judged. Here's what I need to do accomplish. Here are my headwinds. Here are my tailwinds. <laughs> this is why I'm doing it this way. Let's do a thought experiment here. If you have a, a life cycle that you're using that really seems to be troubled by being able to deliver business value on time, on budget, et cetera. Could you use this process to kind of diagnose whether or not that is actually the right process you should be using? Can you you just kind of focus on that and say, hey, you know, we we went down this rabbit hole with SAFE and SAFE Mm -hmm. is the savior of the world and it's going to, everything we do is going to do SAFE and all of a sudden you find people falling away from the practices and principles that really made SAFE shine in the first place. To, to refer back to a recent discussion with a customer in the, the southern part of the United States, they had deployed Agile Safe across the whole organization, and basically there's pushback that the people on the project teams are not seeing the value of doing that. Well, why are they not seeing the value? Because Safe is asking you to do things that are not helping you satisfy your charter control risks or uh, satisfy, uh, you know, taking advantage of an asset, they're forcing you to do things that don't help and potentially not allowing you to do things that would help, but you can't do them because they're not in the process. My response to this customer was, well, let's understand the actual environment that your teams are in. If we know what they're chartered to do, if we know what their risks are, if we know what their assets are, then we can explain why it makes sense to do what we're doing the way we are doing it. It could be that what they were asked to do was inappropriate. Now, it could be that what they were doing was doing the thing they were asked to do incorrectly. But regardless of you're doing it correctly, it's just inappropriate to do in this situation, or you're doing it inappropriately, this gives you the background to understand what you should be doing in the first place and why you should be doing it the way you should be doing it. I think it does give you the ability to look at your toolbox and say, am I using the tool set that process actually thought it was 
involved. Because too often I see things in, in things like Safe or just regular Scrum that they say, oh yeah, we're doing Scrum. And I look at the tools they've implemented. It's not the tools that Scrum was thinking about when it was created. Mm-hmm. They say, but we do a stand-up. And I say, yeah, but you don't understand why the stand-up exists. You're not seeing what it's trying to address, what kind of risk it's trying to deal with, how it's trying to take advantage of an asset. You're just doing it because you saw somewhere it's supposed to do it. And you thought, oh, I have a tool in my toolbox called the status meeting. It seems to fit here and shove it into the daily stand-up. And so you have these little daily status meetings. And it's like, no, that's the wrong tool that you took the wrong practice out of your toolbox, substitute it for a tool that the method thought it was supposed to be there. And you're not dealing with what the method was trying to deal with its risks and assets. The whole cargo cult mentality, because for that particular project in that particular situation, they did it and the project was successful. Therefore, if I do whatever it is on my project, irrespective of whether it makes sense, I must be successful. That classic cargo cult mentality. Yeah. Circling back to the birth of the meta process in 1992, again, I mentioned this very large company in the Pacific Northwest had bought huge into this IT methodology. It was aligned to IT systems, and we were working on non IT systems, scientific engineering embedded real-time, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had to have a good explanation for why we were not doing this IT, uh, you know, and what were we doing? One of the projects that I worked on was corporate employee records, which was a classic IT system that's sitting massively in the crosshairs of this particular off-the-shelf methodology. I go into this project and we do a charter, And we do a risk assessment, and we do an asset assessment, and the default plan was where the -the off-the-shelf methodology didn't contradict our charter, our risks, and our asset. We would just default to doing it the way the -the off-the-shelf methodology said. But there were conditions, and because this was back in 93, 94 timeframe, I can't tell you what the specifics are, but there were cases where what they were asking us to do was inappropriate. And there were things that we really needed to do that were not in the what I call the 17-volume, three-inch, three-ring binder. This company, being the way they were, they had what I called the process police. Well, stronger than process police, but the enforcement mechanism that would come by and audit your project for compliance to the 17 volume theory, show us that you're doing this, show us that you're doing that, show us that you're doing the other thing. And your project was subject to audit. And unless you could show that you were following the process, that you would get dinged. Okay, well, this corporate employee records project got audited. And when the auditors came in, they said, show us that you're doing this 17 volume blah, blah, blah process. And the answer was very upfront, uh, we're not actually doing it. Well, then what in the heck are you doing and why are you doing it? Well, we said, look, here's our charter, dot, 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 do you understand and agree with that? And they said, yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And then we pulled out the risk assessment. We said, okay, here are the risks that we have to deal with, blah, 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 blah. Do you understand that? And fine. And here are our assets, and we go through all this charter risk. And then we went through our plan and said, do you see how where we defaulted to doing what was in your 17-volume process when it made sense to do so, 
but it didn't make sense to do here because of charter difference, risk different, asset difference. So we deviated and we did this instead. And do you see how it didn't apply over here? And this is what we did instead. And so you see, and so we just walk through the places uh, where we were not demonstrably following the process. And there were several of them. But we said, and this is why we're doing it this way. And they left the audit with, oh, my God, this is brilliant. If everybody would do this, our job as auditors would be so much easier. Steve, there's a question that came in directly to you. I want to bring it up real quick so you can answer it. Okay. Hi, Steve. Your book, How to Engineer Software, a Model-Based Approach, is the target audience for comp sci graduates or can developers without this background education use this book too? The book is pretty much targeted, if you want to view it as a textbook, I would argue that it's a textbook targeted at a university level. So you do have to have some understanding of how to develop software in the first place. What does it mean to be write code? What does it mean to be object-oriented, et cetera, et cetera? But it does build up from what kind of models are appropriate. How do you do models well, et cetera, et cetera. So if I was a liberal arts major, but I wrote software for the last five years, could I use this book? If you had enough knowledge about object-oriented development in kind of any language that you would be able to, to follow the book. And I'm not remembering exactly, but I do believe that chapter 24, somewhere in the neighborhood of chapter 24, is the process chapter. Okay, if we're talking about model-based requirements, model-based design, et cetera, et cetera, then how do you do this on a project? Well, that's a process question. Well, here is Waterfall, here is Scrum, and there's an introduction to the meta process in exactly that chapter with the intent of saying, okay, well, if your background is all in just writing code, then get you at least aware of there's more to projects than just writing code. If all you know is Agile, there's more to the universe than just Agile. Expand your toolbox. I'll just freely admit, given the context of today, the toolbox that that book is building is about requirements and design and construction, and to some extent testing. It's more focused on the technical side of things, but there is project management content in it. There is estimation content in it. So it is intended to be a fairly broad, but deeper in some areas and shallower in other areas view of it. software as a true engineering discipline. The point to make here is that this is, a, this is yet another, if you're talking about a, a plan-based approach or an agile approach, this, you know, your approach, a model-based approach is another way to think about how somebody might approach a big project. Per the discussion we were having earlier, model-based is one of the solutions to the requirements problem. Right. If you can model the requirements precisely and concisely, then you can expose incompleteness and misunderstanding in the requirements and iterate on the models and then derive the code from the agreed-on models. If you can't do that, then another approach to addressing requirements issues is what's known as acceptance test-driven development. If we iterate on these acceptance test cases, because look, requirements from Earl, yes, requirements number one problem, ambiguous, incomplete. Instead of writing requirements in a natural language, which is inherently ambiguous, why don't we write the requirements using test case language? Because at least I can make the ambiguity go away. 
that is the magic of ATDD. And so if your big risk is vague, ambiguous, incomplete requirements, the two most powerful tools for addressing that are acceptance test-driven development and model-based development. And if you don't have those skills, write code, show it to them, and they'll see how wrong you are. That's what Agile's bet is. <laughs> and then rewrite the code and show it to them, and then rewrite the code, and, and do you see how expensive this is? It's less expensive to do it in two-week chunks than eight-month chunks. Yeah, okay, true. It depends what you compare it against. Yeah. It's more expensive than doing model-based or acceptance test, good model-based or good acceptance test, but it's less expensive than doing eight months of doing it wrong and then discovering you have to rewrite all the code. My bottom line message in all of this is that I think it is inappropriate for organizations to standardize on a process, be it waterfall, be it scrum, be it safe, be it whatever. It's inappropriate to standardize on a process because the assumptions that that process is making about the nature of all your projects in your environment are not going to fit all projects in your environment. So don't standardize on the process. Standardize on the meta process. Require every project to have a charter. Require every project to do a risk assessment. Require every project to do an asset assessment. Require every project to have a plan that is consistent with their charter, their risks, and their assets. And if you want to do auditing, then audit the project, too. It's charter risks and assets and its plan and see if everything makes sense. I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit, though, and say you can standardize a little. I think you can standardize on a process if the purpose of the standardization is to give most people a consistent and better toolbox. They've walked into these jobs often with very weak and inappropriate toolboxes. And if you teach them a set of better tools that work well together many times, that just increases your possibility. When you get into a charter's asset, when you look at your risks, look at your assets, even look at your charter and say, what practices do I have available to me to address this? If I don't know model-based, if I don't know acceptance test, because yeah, I never used a method that had that before, and so we never learned it, I never was taught it in the job, I never took classes in it, then you're screwed again. Choosing a method to at least standardize and start rallying around a little bit to help grow the toolbox initially and then allow people to say, hey, let's experiment. Let me learn some additional tools from experts like Steve over here so that I can have a better toolbox and deviate from the standard where appropriate. Well, if it gives you a stake in the ground, yes. But I guess I personally of the opinion, and I've used this example many times before, is that it would not make sense to send a chemist to solve a chemical engineering problem. A chemist approaches problem solving in a particular way. A chemical engineer approaches solving different problems in a different way. It just would not make sense to send a chemist to solve a chemical engineering problem. But then by analogy, why in the software industry do we insist on sending at best computer scientists to solve software engineering problems? This industry is about solving software engineering problems. Why don't we educate people in software as an engineering discipline, which is well beyond computer science, related but distinctly different? And until we really solve that toolbox, that education problem, why would we expect anything to get any better in the industry than it has been in the past 60, 70 years? If we keep throwing the same kind of people at it. This rant sounds like a fodder for a new podcast. Yeah. Why don't we do oh, software engineering? Easily.
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, the, as the only real engineer on the panel, I would say that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> as a consultant, charter risk asset is sort of one of my secret tools that I come into a, a organization. They say, well, how are we doing? And I say, okay, tell me about what your overall goals are. I try to figure out what their charter is, who is their authority, who is the agent, what are the resources, what are the constraints you're giving me. I try then ask them about what they know about the risks and assume a few of them. Like I can assume, yeah, you probably got crappy requirements because almost everyone has crappy requirements. This is my secret sauce if you will, to going into the organization and being able to consult and give really good, actionable items to it. And I think for a lot of you folks, this could be a really good tool for you to start really thinking at a higher level about way you develop software. That said, I've learned that folks who actually can think at multiple levels of abstraction are not as common as I like to think they are. There are some of you folks who just need a process and need to know something to do today to get the job done. It's a good point. Maybe not everyone's suited for CRA. Hopefully they are, but if they're not, find someone who is, can help you then grow the toolbox that best suits the kind of problems that you constantly face. Well, I'm still recovering from my last book. (laughs) But if I do get around to writing another book, the next book in the queue will be right-sizing your software process, which would be the the book version of the meta process. Well, there's a there's a leak to the future. Yeah, <laughs> just cool. Now, now any parting, any last comments? I just want to make a couple of comments. Is that this? We did put this meta process as one of our constructs, 10x software development processes. But you can see where it fits in. Hopefully, several of them. Taylor's solution to the problem obviously is a normal home that you need to actually write, apply the right set of tools to the kind of problem you have and the kind of environment you have. Right. But also just having a clear charter, getting that agreement really nailed down is the set direction one. Too many projects, I go in and they have no idea really what the end game looks like. They just know they're supposed to be working on stuff. Right. And tons of my avoid minus X engineering advice in CRA as well. Whereas if you start taking out the things that don't make sense that shoot you in the foot and doing the things that make sense because they help you satisfy the charter, take advantage of your assets and mitigate your risks. That's a big win. Well, so I was actually, case in point, doing a project management class for an organization in Beijing, which involved, let's do a charter for your project. And this was the flagship product for this particular company. And long story short, we could not reach agreement on what the charter was. This set of people claimed that the charter was this. And that set of people claimed that the charter couldn't be this. It had to be that. And there was no wonder that the project needed help with project management because everybody's trying to manage the project in different directions. So that whole exercise pointed out that, hmm, we better try and get agreement on what we're trying to accomplish here. Back to the point of being of using it as a lens to to understand mm-hmm. that you really don't have you don't have what you need to get started. And to go down the path and get started without that, it's a pretty good chance you're not going to be successful. Right. I think this has been a great discussion. Steve, clearly you you are you are an expert on this area. I think I'm going to encourage people, if you haven't, if you didn't come up with questions during this live session, if you think about something after you watch this particular or listen to this particular podcast, please feel free to shoot us a message. Comments at constructs.com is fine. Steve will be happy to you know, message you back and give you some information and some thoughts about how you might want to try this in your own practices here. 
Okay, Michael sends one more question in. We can take one more. Since the book isn't written yet, are there other materials that will help? Is there a paper? So you mentioned that a little bit, Steve, right? Actually, there are a handful of things that I'll easily make available. One of them is, again, this sort of white paper that talks about strengths and weaknesses of Agile and strengths and weaknesses of Waterfall. There are actually written process documents on how to do a charter, how to do a risk assessment, how to do an asset assessment. Now, these actually trace back to, guess what, 1992. Uh, There are process documents that exist. If your job is to do an asset assessment, how do you do it? Here's a template. Here's a checklist. Here's some guidance. Hey, Steve, remember how they made it into our CX-1 meta process? Right. Right. Yeah. You Back guys. in the day. Yeah. You guys. Right. Yeah. So, so there are things available. And again, if you just contact us, comments at constructs.com. Yep. I learned a lot. It's pretty rare for me to stay very silent, but I did in this particular case because I was listening to both of you guys and you had a lot of good things to say. And I hope everybody that's that listened today on the live stream and those of those who listen in the future are going to enjoy what they, what they hear today. And I appreciate both of your, your talents and your, and your knowledge today. This has been really helpful to me. Wow. These guys really are my heroes, you know? I mean, really, what a great way to end that conversation with an offer to share more details and templates to help. I mean, I got excited listening to the recording and I was there. So much to harvest from that discussion, simply using the right tools for the job, different problems require different solutions. I mean, the saw analogy, so easy for many of us to relate to, right? Different assumptions, explicitly or implicitly made, so, so important to recognize what your organization is agreeing to up front. So hopefully listening to the meta process examples are telling you that maybe trying to force fit your projects with ill-fitting practices is just not going to allow you to be as successful as you could be. The charter risk asset approach might be a great tool to use on your next project to make sure you're getting started on the right foot. And if you try this approach, let us know how it went. We filled a lot of good questions during the live session, but if you have more detailed questions about how to apply it, reach out and let us know and we'd be happy to get in touch with you and give you some more pointers. If you enjoyed this style of episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you normally find us. If you have comments or would like to talk to one of our practitioners or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We would love to hear from you. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host and Earl Beatty as the audio hack and producer in the background. Talk to you again soon, everybody, and have a great next sprint.